I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Smart Peace, a mini-series on the Undercurrents podcast feed. Peaceful change is political. It involves negotiation and agreement. Supporting peaceful change processes means using networks strategically to engage people in dialogue. People with power and people without it, and people who want change and people who resist it. As part of the Smart Peace Consortium, Chatham House has been working in recent years to develop new approaches to peace building in three different countries, Central African Republic, Myanmar and Nigeria, which build upon a range of different techniques and expertise in terms of conflict analysis, community dialogue, elite mediation, evaluation and behavioural science. The consortium includes organisations from across the world, including the Asia Foundation, the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue, Conciliation Resources, the Behavioural Insights Team at ETH Zurich and International Crisis Group alongside Chatham House. In this mini-series, I'll be speaking to some of the people involved in the Smart Peace project, which has now come to an end, to find out about the lessons that they learnt from their activities in the three countries, and also to find out a bit more about the drivers of conflict in those regions that we're discussing. In this first episode, I'm joined by Caesar Publix and Lisa Heinzel from Conciliation Resources to talk about their work in the Central African Republic. CAR is a country which has undergone a considerable political transformation in recent years, but has also experienced severe conflict over many decades, involving a whole multitude of armed groups. In this conversation, Caesar and Lisa explain some of the drivers behind conflict in CAR, the recent political developments in the country, and then also the work that Smart Peace has been doing to bring various stakeholders around the table and to try and support peace processes at a local level. In particular, we talk about their work engaging marginalised voices who are often excluded from the conversation. In particular, how they engaged with communities of young people in CAR as part of these processes. I hope you enjoy listening. Okay, so here I am today in Chatham House, very excitingly, for an in-person recording. And I'm joined by uh, Lisa Heinzel and Caesar Publix of Conciliation Resources. Great to see you guys. Thank you for making the trip in. Thank you for having having us. Very excited to be talking today about the work that your consortium has been doing in Central African Republic. And I think for the benefit of our listeners who may not be too up to date with the situation in the country, I think it would be very helpful if we could talk about the kind of recent political history to begin with. So Lisa, maybe maybe if you start, I wonder if we could just get a bit of an overview about how politics in Central African Republic has proceeded in recent years and what the sort of key drivers to this ongoing conflict and disruption have been. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, I think if we want to understand what drives conflict in, in Central African Republic, we have to go back a few years. First of all, I think it's important to understand that crises have been there for at least three decades. So there have been a various number of uh, sociopolitical crises. But I think if we want to zoom in a little bit, the, the year that we want to look at is 2012 and 2013, 
when a coalition called Silica overthrew President, former President Bozizé, who had been in power since 2003 and who was outset uh, in 2013. And that was a that was a real turning point in the crisis, uh, conflict in CAR. Um, the Silica coalition was made up by a number of armed groups, mainly with a Muslim background. And these armed groups, on their way to Bangui, really kind of committed a num- horrific violence against civilians. And that led to a to a mobilization of of militia groups that are called anti-Balaka often associated with the Christian communities, but um, really a mixture of people. And these anti-Balaka militias, again, committed grave abuses against civilians, and in this case, mainly Muslim civilians. So that kind of led to these cycles of violence, inter-community violence, driven by these armed grouping, but also pulling in, in communities. At the same time, in the years after 2013-2014, we started seeing splintering of armed groups. So what used to be a coalition of Silica armed groups splintered in various groups until we had more than 14 armed groups or even 16. And these armed groups again started clashing. So you had different conflict dynamics, including clashes between armed groups, often revolving around competition, uh, around uh, natural resources, transhumans corridors, etc. So there have been a number of peace agreements trying to really tackle this violence and address the violence. The most recent one being in 2019 called the APPR. But none of these peace agreements really managed to address the the root causes of the conflict. They often fighting resumed very shortly after and the armed groups never really showed real commitment to to peace. So I think we really have to understand that in this context, what emerged was some sort of status quo where armed groups controlled the countryside and where the government controlled maybe the capital and in some cases the provincial towns. But in reality, that was the power dynamic that kind of didn't really significantly change even in the face of, of peace agreements. So this is the background that we have to kind of understand. And then we look now at December 2020 when the presidential and parliamentary elections came. And that was when a real shift happened because six of the armed groups that had signed a peace agreement in 2019 actually formed a new coalition called the CPC or the Coalition of Patriots for Change and started marching towards Bangui and we suspected it, but it wasn't immediately officially confirmed. But actually, who emerged as the, the leader of this coalition was former President Bouzizé, who had been, as I mentioned, outset in 2013, and who had attempted to, to, candidate, to be a candidate in the presidential elections. And when the Constitutional Court ruled against his candidacy, that's when he started mobilizing armed groups that later became known as the CPC. So what we saw was a marching of these armed groups towards Bangui. They even reached outskirts of Bangui in January 2013 and within a short period of time managed to really control large swaths of the country. And that was a really kind of turning point or a new crisis that I think maybe could have been expected, but maybe went beyond what people had feared. And so the main, the main problem with that, that is that it showed that the 2019 peace agreement was not able to prevent that forming of armed groups and that actually those who had signed it turned away, turned its back. And faced with this immediate threat, the government, supported by bilateral um, allies, notably the Rwandese and the Russians, started really pushing back. Uh, so in the beginning of this year, we really saw a military offensive against the CPC uh, positions. And... Again, in a very short amount of time, the government was able to take back a number of important cities across the country and really pushed 
the CPC back to the north of the country. So in these months, the government was really focused on military offensive. They were very clear that their strategy was to use military force. But it also became very quickly clear that military offensive alone would not really allow us to tackle the, the real source of the conflict. So there was more and more push for dialogue, like the, the, the need to actually also engage into dialogue. So there were a number of consultations in the spring, but the real controversy that is kind of keeping the country up until today, and that is really at the core of what does dialogue mean in CAR, who is part of that dialogue, who is not part of the dialogue. And actually the government in Central African Republic is, is, has for the last months been always resolutely opposed to talking to CPC saying that they turned their back on the peace agreement, therefore they will not be involved in any, any talks. But at the same time, the question of how can you find peace when you don't talk to six of the biggest armed groups in CAR is, is, is a really critical question. So I think that's what the government is grappling with right now when, when they are thinking of designing this dialogue, this pathway out of, out of conflict. And... As conservation resources, we've, we've been listening to young people, we've been talking to civil society organizations, and what's becoming clear is that people are not really up for a process that will just kind of use the same tools as before. So as I mentioned, the peace agreements have not really led, they have not managed to address the root causes of the conflict. And so now the big question is, how can you do it differently this time? What will be different this time around? And what we're hearing when we talk to civil society and, and young people is that there's really a need to think of inclusion, of seeing how can, how can the population be in, involved in this? How can we ensure that the next dialogue is not just an elite bargain where the government and the armed groups sit around a table and try to kind of distribute government positions? How can this time around, how can the population be involved? So to us, I think that's the, the big question of when we want to think of conflict in CAR right now. Uh, thank you so much. That was uh, such a great overview. And uh, sorry, it was such a big question to start with. You've encapsulated that history, I think, really helpfully. Caesar, I wondered if Lisa mentioned some of the drivers of the conflict that we've seen over the past years. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about that. I think it's often presented as a something that has its roots in religious affiliations and identities, but it seems to be more complicated than that. So could you maybe tell us what's driving this ongoing tension? Yes, as, as Lisa indicated, 2013 was actually a serious turning point because Central African Republic, I would actually call the crisis a kind of stable instability with, with cycles of very extreme violence since 2003. The country has been divided into two, as, as Lisa indicated. Uh, the countryside is mainly controlled by arms, arms groups and mainly the, the mining areas and that and the, the government has actually been controlling the, the capital and some of the, the townships. So 2013 actually became a point where the identity conflict started manifesting itself very strongly in a community where for decades Muslims and Christians have been living together because of the way in which the Seleka armed groups actually came marched into Bangui and started targeting uh, the communities who associate themselves as Christians. And anti-Balaka group who rose against them are mainly Christians. So the, the violence is actually organized around 
religious communities. But actually, there is no religious conflict in Central African Republic. So it, because of this extreme violence on each of these communities, it has actually divided the, the, the community such that we are actually dealing with an analysis that there is a religious conflict in Central African Republic when it is not. And our responses have always been around <laughs> organizing Christians and, and Muslims. But in the actual sense, the actual, there's no actual conflict. The violence, yes, around communities that are associated with Christianity and, and, and Islam. And that is really where the problem lies. A kind of wrong analysis, wrong response, and the problem is not being solved. The agreements that are being signed is more about appeasing those kind of positions. How many Muslims in, in the ministry? How many Christians? So it's, it's really skewing the actual addressing of the root causes of, of the conflict. And also because some of these armed groups actually come from these communities and there is no government services like security, they've actually become providers of security in their own communities. This is where the country is actually seriously divided. The countryside is mainly controlled by armed groups who mainly also come from those particular communities. So the community is kind of in a, a Stockholm syndrome where, I mean, this, this is a, a person who has got a group who have got arms and they're in your community. Somehow they're also providing you with security and they're also extorting tax <laughs> from you. So the community is caught up in this. But what I'm simply saying is that this stalemate has actually got into some extreme violence that occur in a cycle. And 2013 was the extreme of it where lootings, killings, massive revenge killings actually started in Central African Republic. So the communities are caught up in a situation where there seems to be no, no much solution. This is where I think Smart Peace wanted to make a difference. And maybe if I can add to that and just bring, bring in some of the, the research we've done in the last years, if the, the killings and the looting that Caesar is describing, it's really it's this, this vicious circle because it's this same violence that then drove, other, for example, young people into joining armed groups themselves, seeing relatives being killed in front of their eyes or losing their entire property is what actually then created this deep sense of revenge, for example, where they wanted to seek revenge or where simply they needed protection and they joined armed groups. And it's something we've been hearing really strongly from young people that we listen to in, in Northwestern Sierra. And that's, that's how they explained why they themselves would join armed groups. It was not religious reasons as such. This was, this was not, not the national conflict either. It was really their very local experiences of what they'd gone through. I mean, also, in this, some of this listening exercise and engaging with the armed groups that we are able to reach out to, and then the community groups, both the pastoralists and the farmers, really, they have been living together for decades. But somehow, because of the, the, the political crisis that develops in the capital, the, the brand of the violence is actually borne by, by communities itself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I'd like to come back to the impact uh, that this violence is having on local communities as well. But before I do, just to stick with the political kind of big picture, Lisa, you mentioned that part of the 
the government's resurgence this year in military terms that they've had some support from from foreign powers uh, Rwanda and uh, Russia but i wondered if if you could tell us a bit more about the involvement of of foreign states in this conflict other than that is it a relatively kind of internal domestic civil conflict in car or do we see a lot of intervention from different different foreign states First of all, it's I would definitely say it's 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 a conflict that plays out in Central African Republic, but where the wider region is is really important. So, first of all, if you look at the armed groups that have back in 2013 formed the Silica, but until today are maybe called ex-Silica armed groups, so different groups. And many of their soldiers actually are not from Central African Republic. They right. they come from Sudan. They come from Chad. So you definitely see these links with the neighboring states around Central African Republic, where also, I think same if we think of transhumans, for example, which is a key driver of violence in Central African Republic. Again, the cattle herders often come from from the from the countries in the region, or even cattle owners say the ones that actually own the cattle are often, for example, can be businessmen in in, in Chad. So definitely, you see all these regional dynamics playing out very strongly in Central African Republic, and therefore. If you want to look at different entry points into the conflict, definitely the regional dimension is, is extremely important. Then the other thing that is, is maybe a, a bit of a new phenomenon over the last, say, four years or so is, of course, Russia, Russian involvement. I think we started seeing it around 2017 when the diplomatic relationships started to, to grow stronger. Um, so that has been going on since 2017, but clearly what we've been seeing since the electoral crisis in December 2020 is that we actually see Russian forces fighting alongside the Central African army. And those are, it's all a bit unclear, of course, as always, but they're likely to be Russian mercenaries, the, yeah, the, the Wagner group, um, for example, fighting alongside, there's been reports of them fighting alongside Central African forces. So that, again, has bigger geopolitical dimensions that are playing out in CAR. As we're already talking about the Russians, I think it's important to mention that while militarily, definitely, I think the, the offensive, the counteroffensive we've seen since January 2021 is definitely the government has had that support and it's made a real difference, as we can see. But of course, we can't talk about the Russians without mentioning the reports of alleged human rights abuses that allegedly these um, Russian mercenaries are committing against the civilian population. There's a growing number of reports from different parts of the country, both reports coming from the United Nations, but also from media outlets like CNN and Vice News, for example. So it's something that is very sensitive in Central African Republic that might add new layers to the conflict that have not been there before. Surely, uh, the, the power dynamics in Central African Republic is being kind of skewed by the support from, from the Russians and the, the Rwandan soldiers. But this actually reinforces the, the, the fact that the other side would probably even want to, to, to have support more from their allies in Chad, mm. in, other, in, in other places. So it actually moves the whole dynamics of the conflict from specifically addressing issues of conflict within their own countries to a more complex region. You know, Central African Republic is connected to the whole Sahel pastoralist movement. And some of these pastoralists who used to negotiate their way through the communities, the farmer communities in Central African Republic down to DRC, they are now beginning to acquire even small arms because of these differences to push their way through. Mm -hmm. So some of these regional dynamics actually plays very much 
in the conflict in Central African Republic. Yeah, thank you. Actually, can I just push you for a bit more detail on that particular point, just because I think it's it's so important to this whole picture, and we may not have a good understanding of it <laughs> here in London, but this whole aspect of the, the pastoralist communities, could you maybe tell us a bit more about their origins and, and how they play into this into this whole situation? Yeah, you know, uh, the pastoralist community in Central African Republic settled over, over 70, 70 years ago, but they are actually of a Fulani origin from Nigeria, from the whole of this Sahel region. They are always migrating along, along these routes. And Central African Republic is actually, Northern Central African Republic and Cameroon is actually part of their roots. Mm. As I said before, there has always been a mechanism for them to negotiate their, their way through, through these routes, local mechanisms for, for, for that. But when this crisis of 2013 came up, the division between Muslims and Christians became very strong. The suspicions became so strong that the Fulanis who are pastoralists who are mainly Muslims are actually seen as opposition. Mm. So if they are actually seen by communities whom, with whom they have negotiated local mechanisms for a long time as enemies now. So this is what I'm saying, that something that was actually managed locally through local mechanisms is now taking a different dimension because of this, what is taking place in Chad, the, the kind of easy access to, to arms. Uh, yeah, so these communities are 70 years on, they've been negotiating their way through that because of the political dynamics in the capital of Central African Republic, Bangui. We are actually beginning to see, who knows, it is very much within reach of the jihadists, I might say. I, I might sound alarmist, but they, they drive to access arms so that they're able to drive their, their animals through the, the land. Is, is actually triggering more of a suspicion and fear in communities. And communities are also mobilizing to defend themselves. So that is that cycle that is really... And maybe to add on that is also what has maybe strengthened that dynamic is that some armed groups, some ex armed groups are actually claiming to defend Fulani herders or Mburu herders, like as they're called in Central African Republic. They're actually saying this is, the, this is what legitimizes their operations. So I think by directly associating themselves with Fulani herders, whether those, those want that or not, want that protection or not, also reinforces that perception that Mburu herders are directly kind of allied with, with ex groups, which is, in some cases, for some herders that is the case, but for others it is not at all the case. But that makes little difference maybe to a community who has experienced violence from the Silica a few years back and now see these herders coming. Thank you for explaining that. That, that makes things a lot clearer. I wanted to ask now about the impact that all of this conflict has had on the state of Central African Republic and, and, and how that's affected kind of communities. It must have caused sort of, you know, untold disruption to the economy, to infrastructure in the country, to the delivery of public services. Could you maybe tell us a bit about that picture? You know, in Central African Republic, they are actually a small population mm. and the resources are not being organised centrally. The communities are actually affected in such that those who used to be mineral artisans, organizing themselves around minerals, extracting that, and then selling it on to the national process and on to, to the international market. It's now being, being done by small groups. Mm. 
So it's almost like a small group of armed groups controlling a particular mineral area are now ferrying it off to countries in different ways. So the country is actually suffering enormously in terms of organizing its resources. Yeah. That would actually be enough for its citizens. But the, the, the dynamics of the conflict in that way does not lend itself to this management of these resources in that way. So the communities are suffering because of that. That if it were organized, the communities would be really benefiting from the kind of of activities that take place in the mineral and it's kind of small shops that grow around that area. But now because of tense insecurity control of that particular area, the, the, the management of these resources are really fragmented. I guess when we want to understand the situation of the civilian population, I think also sometimes numbers can help. Yeah. Uh, it's over 700,000 people are internally displaced and again, this, roughly the same amount of people are refugees today. So we have a huge part of the population that is not in their original homes that had to flee either their town or even their entire country um, because of violence and because of insecurity. And that means, of course, that the humanitarian needs are, are enormous, that you've got large IDPs, internally displaced camps. So I think that just as a background to understand maybe what situation the population finds itself in today. It is a very precarious situation that is then if you the, the December 2020 crisis again gave a new wave of, of displacement so that people maybe who had already been displaced had to be displaced again so I think that is part of the day-to-day -day life but also if I think you mentioned the state and maybe the I think the state populated the relationships between the state and the population is also something important to to understand but in in the context of CAR I wouldn't necessarily say that before 2013 there was a strong relationship that then has right. been broken, but rather we're talking about a state that has always been heavily centralized, that has been absent in big parts of the country mm. even before before the crisis. And But I think that the violence has just kind of increased that gap between kind of what is perceived as the elite in Bangui that is doing fairly well and those populations in the countryside that are facing the brunt of the conflict and that actually really know what it means to live alongside armed groups, to live with daily insecurity. And actually, since 2013 crisis, the country is effectively being heavily supported by the United Nations. Right. It's heavily supported by United Nations in terms of providing security, the training of local, local forces. In fact, even now, the issue of providing security to civilian communities. So the international communities have actually put in a, a, lot, of, a lot of effort in terms of stabilizing that country. And this dependency on the United Nations and the international community started by the support that the United, the United Nations gave in terms of the transition government. When Jotodia's government collapsed, there was a transitional government that led into now two elections. Yeah, yeah the, the first election was actually greeted with a lot of hope that maybe this is a new beginning for Central African Republic. And the 2020 election was also, although the preparations are still, were still difficult with challenges, mm. it was actually seen as the second peaceful <laughs> transition that has actually taken place in Central African Republic. And then comes the CPC, the, the coalition of armed groups with the former president. So it's really this cycle that the consortium, the Smart Peace Consortium, are, are concerned about. 
maybe also if we want to look at kind of the, the impact of the conflict on civilians, another thing that I think is really important to highlight is that despite all the suffering that we've talked about, communities are not passive actors in the conflict. In fact, they've shown incredibly incredible resilience and they've really shown also an engagement and commitment to peace. So, so what we've seen is that there has been local peace initiatives, there have been local peace structures who, in the midst of all this violence, have done incredible work actually to, to deal with the conflict at the local level, to, to mediate between armed group factions, to, to maybe bring back young people who had been associated with armed groups. So I think we really have to under, understand that as well, because often in conflict we like to see civilians as these passive, powerless actors. And in fact, no, in Central African Republic we... We have seen a lot of incredible local peace builders that are, be it kind of the traditional leaders, be it young people themselves, that have really done a lot to prevent conflict in their specific areas, um, which also explains why today you do see communities that are relatively peaceful or where violence can be mitigated in a large sense. Uh, and that's something that also as a, the Smart Peace Project really wanted to build on and wanted to strengthen this local peace building. Yeah, thank you. I'd, I'd like to come to Smart Peace now and, and to talk about the approach that you took. I mean, you mentioned at the start there that something that you really found that was that was lacking was this kind of inclusion of, of different parts of the community, young people, civil society, and also, of course, this, this local aspect. But could you tell us a bit more about the sort of wider approach that Smart Peace took and the sorts of activities you were involved with? Yeah, maybe I'll start by kind of describing the key priorities that we took and then we can go into some concrete examples. But I think in the background of all this conflict analysis that we jointly had as the Smart Peace Consortium, what came out very strongly as two key priorities was to A, look at this gap between the capital Bangui and between the national peace process and between local peace process. So we really wanted to strengthen the link between those two because as the conflict analysis shows currently there is a very worrying gap so that was one priority that we had and then the other priority refers to the point of local peace builders we really wanted to at the same time strengthen local peace initiatives in particular um, with a specific focus on local peace initiatives that tackle herder farmer violence. So those were the two key strategic priorities. So we had two, um, we had conciliation resources and the Center for Humanitarian Dialogues, who were mainly working on the programming implementation side. But we also had two very important partners that you could call research or analysis partners, which are the International Crisis Group and ETH Zurich, the university. And those two actors really contributed a lot with their analysis, in particular crisis group, with their political analysis, also regional analysis that really helped to embed what the implementing partners were doing at the local level into this wider political picture. And also at the same time, crisis group picked up what was happening on the ground in the areas where we worked and incorporated that in their analysis and in their advocacy that they were doing with national and international policymakers. And at the same time, ETH Zurich was doing a more long-term research that looked at the effectiveness of local peace initiatives and kind of did this quantitative study of what makes to understand how effective these initiatives are. So this is kind of the analytical mm -hmm. framework that we had. But then the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue and Conciliation Resources did uh, the peace building on the ground. And maybe, Cesar, you can talk uh, maybe about the initiatives that were done with herder farmer conflicts. Maybe to say that there's obviously there were lots of work strands, so we thought it might be a bit more useful to look at two case studies or that show a bit of how the work was done and the impact that it had. 
our, our collaboration with HD was mainly on the pastoralist conflict and particularly the border with, with, with Cameroon. And we actually started our approach by understanding what are the local mechanisms that existed in that area. And the, the simple question was really, you haven't been fighting every day. <laughs> so what are the mechanisms that pastoralists and farmers used to have in terms of negotiating their, their way out as a community? And they had local mechanisms that were actually fragmented because of this conflict. So with HD, we actually started by conducting a baseline study to understand those complexities. And then what we home into actually De developing the capacities of a local mediation network from the Cameroon side and also from the Central African side where elders and communities and women groups are actually facilitated to, to conduct local mediation. There's some training in skills in facilitating dialogue and also actual dialogue in practice, mentoring them in terms of how they are able to, with simple tools, that, that they are able to reflect on the historical perspective of, of the conflict, how they have managed their conflict before, and then how they are able to, to work to, to benefit, so that they, the pastoralists see the, the benefit of collaborating with farmers, and the farmers also see the, the benefit of collaborating with the, the, the pastoralists. So in that way, your Center for Humanitarian Dialogue started developing this local mediation network to the extent that by the, the beginning of this year, some of the, the pastorates who are associated with, with as Muslims against Christians have started returning back to their, their original homes. Mm. So this is the kind of thing that we have actually been... So the gap, the, the, the capacity of government to, to actually work with communities is so low such that local mechanisms needed to be strengthened. And this is the strategy that Smart Peace actually developed, that we, we understand research, as, as Lisa explained. We stand political analysis from International Crisis Group, and this uh, research, the quantitative research that has been carried out, so that we combine this kind of practice with communities quantitative research, and also political analysis. Mm. I think this is where the strength of Smart Peace actually came in, mm. that we understand the communities, we understand the political dynamics in the country, and there is actual quantitative evidence of local, local peace processes. And the, the quantitative evidence was really very clear that with the documents and documents, as Lisa said, we started... Before Smart Peace, we, we had already started working with local peace cells in the, in, in the countryside. And evidence shows that these communities really want to develop a kind of peaceful, stable community they have always had. And the, the quantitative research actually indicated very clearly that local peace agreements, when supported by the, the local UN base in a particular area, they are actually sustained longer than than the, the national peace agreements. Mm. So this is what we have actually been doing, particularly with the pastoralists. It is more of actually appealing to their, to their local mechanisms, appealing to the kind of benefit that they would have farmers collaborating with the pastoralists to see the benefit of both sides other than just seeing themselves as adversaries. So Lisa, you wanted to speak about this other case study that you've been working on. 
So the other element that I mentioned was that there was this huge gap between the realities of conflict-affected communities and what happens at the national level. So one key element that Smart Peace wanted to do was to bridge that gap. And one work strand that we, we particularly worked on was understanding what young people associated to armed groups, how they see the conflict, what drives them, what are the push factors and what are the pull factors that could pull them out of armed groups. And for us, it, it was really important to understand these drivers, what, um, because it's only then that the national process can really develop answers or strategies that actually address these needs. So, so that was our, our real motivation behind it. And also it was just the reality in Central African Republic is that often the voices of young people, especially those in armed groups, is not really present. When you look at the negotiating tables, it's the leaders of the armed groups that are sitting there. And it's assumed that these leaders represent the large groups of rank and file. Um, but in reality, also there, we see a big disconnect. So we felt it was important to go directly to the young people and hear to what they have to say. So this is a research we did in February 2020. And it was actually co-funding of Smart Peace, but also the UN Peace Building Fund, which I also want to acknowledge here. And we really heard from the young people. And what we heard was what drove them to join was local conflict drivers. It was their experiences, it was them having witnessed uh, kind of violence, having lost their families, that's what pushed them into the armed groups, not necessarily national conflict dynamics. So we packaged these findings into, into reports that were really destined to a policy audience. So we tried to communicate these voices to those who were actually in a position, either in the Central African government to, to influence the peace process, but also the international community, who was, as Caesar said, very critical in, in the peace process. And not only did we write these reports and disseminate them with kind of all the key stakeholders, but also we created spaces where young people themselves were able to communicate them directly to decision makers. So we invited representatives of the ministries to join young people in, in Bosangoa, for example, and listen to them. And that was really, I think, even more powerful than any report could be because the ministers were just confronted with the realities and went away telling us that it was just really helpful for them for their future work on understanding what these young people felt. And also just we felt that putting in place these communication channels or these contacts between the young people at the very local level and the ministers was something that would kind of over a longer time foster this mutual understanding. So this was it's just one example of what we did to try to bridge the gap. Of course, it was not the only one, but it's something I really wanted to, to highlight. And the reports are available on our website for those who want to actually hear what the young people had to say. It's such an important aspect to try and get young people engaged. It's uh, something that Chatham House has also been working on in other projects. I think that um, particularly in, in uh, African countries, often the, the, you know, just the demographic reality, youth are such a large portion of the population. And you, if you're not taking their views into account, then how are you going to mobilise any kind of support <laughs> for, and, for and what also, you want to do? And also this kind of qualitative participation of the youth, actually, the, the approach we also took is that qualitative participation of, of the youth in the local area, like in, in the north of the country, during COVID, uh, the COVID-19 time, this is when authorities started appreciating the, the contribution of the youth, because in terms of mobilizing for sensitization around COVID, youth became very active in working with the medical staff in those local areas. And then when you, when you sit in a meeting like that and the youth develop their own advocacy strategy and then they engage with local authority, 
and something that comes out of a youth and say, you know, during COVID, water is very important. And we have got boreholes and water points that have been established a long time ago, but they're simply broken down. They simply needs to be repaired. And then a few months down the line, line the repair of those water points starts. So th this kind of participatory approach begins to change the attitude of authority of to looking at youth ah these are people who climb trees and protest <laughs> against against the authority no they also have ideas <laughs> that that they are able to 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 contribute so this the kind of smart piece actually kind of also brought this idea of appreciates the youth through participation in ideas to during crisis like covid demonstrated it very clearly Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. So uh, I think I'd like to draw this conversation to a close just by asking you, you know, obviously for external reasons that uh, smart pieces come to an end now uh, as you're listening to this. But what do you think the kind of enduring lessons for this approach, you know, for, for policymakers who want to engage with similar activities in the future? Like what are the key things that you think they should be bearing in mind off the basis of what you've been doing? I think there are kind of... In terms of lessons, we can look at two levels. One is, of course, um, understanding how a consortium such as Smart Peace works and what are the lessons from there. And then, of course, for us, the important lesson is also what did we learn about peace building in, mm. in Central African Republic? But if we first look at what does it mean to work in a consortium with very different um, organizations, like in our case, one real lesson that we learned was that it just takes time to set up consortia like that that are made up of organizations with very different mandates very different strengths therefore but it, it's important to to invest very early on in that relationship building in aligning our approaches or seeing kind of where the benefits and the strengths are of each organization and how it can work together and very often donors expect organizations to work in consortia but at the same time maybe leave very little time for that relationship building to happen so that is I think a very key lesson lesson learned Another one, I think, was that adaptive peace building is so... that it's, It sounds maybe simple, but adaptive peace building is so important, especially when we, we look at a conflict like Central African Republic. Since the start of Smart Peace, we've had three major adaptation points. We've had COVID, the emergence of the pandemic, which nobody could have predicted and which obviously changed dramatically how we were operating on the ground. Second was, of course, the December 2020 electoral crisis and the emergence of the CPC that, again, changed the entire <laughs> concept, the entire it questions, the peace, the peace agreement, and it therefore gave, again, a very new operating environment. And third, it's, it's less, less context-specific, but, of course, the fact that the funding had been cut short, and that was another adaptation point where we had to see how could we adapt our work so that it can be sustained over the long time. And just to these kind of... Some of these contextual changes were, of course, a surprise like COVID, but at the same time, we have to expect in a country like CR, we have to expect this kind of uh, crisis to happen. So if we had been working with a very linear program that expected step after step, I think we would have struggled to really work meaningfully. But the fact that Smart Peace gave us this flexibility, also in terms of budget, we were really able to adapt our plans constantly based on the analysis that we got and shape our approach in a way that remained meaningful even when the big parameters changed. So that's another key lesson I think that is important for Central African Republic but I think many conflict affected contexts around the world. Yeah, I mean as I alluded to earlier on, this kind of cross federalization of research and practice 
really came together during Smart Peace. The benefit of actually practitioners benefiting from quantitative research, benefiting from political analysis at, 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 that, at that level. That cross-fertilization actually worked very well. And kind of we, we had managed to learn to work together with organizations that have been working differently in Central African Republic for, for some time. Now working together as that. So at a point where we were actually knew well where our disagreements are, where we can actually collaborate, I think this is when Smart Peace came, came to an end. So the lesson here is that collaboration on specific issues, even if there are differences in, in organizations, if you can pack the differences and then work with what you're able to collaborate on, that cross-fertilization is something that needs to be adapted. And maybe finally, just a lesson on peace building in Central African Republic. It's especially at this time when the government is preparing a Republican, what they call Republican dialogue, when we are moving into this next attempt to bring sustainable peace to the country. I think it's so important to not just look at the tools that we already have at our availability to maybe just try it, the same methods again, which could be, for example, having the government and the armed groups negotiate. I really think now is the time to think of how can this dialogue become much more inclusive, how can communities, including those young people that we listen to, how can they, how can they really participate, how can they share their priorities and how can we then ensure a process that is not just a one-off consultation but really a longer conversation between the Central African state and its citizens That is, I think, a really, really critical question right now um, that we're hearing from all sides where inclusion is just the key. And if, if this inclusion is not there, it's hard to see how maybe this dialogue will be different from, from the ones before. So really an urgent call for to think of how can this dialogue be brought to the communities outside of Bangui and not just stay with, with those that are already in power. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, I think inclusion is the key is a great message to close the episode. Lisa, Caesar, thanks so much for joining me. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. So that's it for this episode of Smart Peace. Thank you very much for listening all the way through to the end. If you liked what you've heard, I would really appreciate it if you could tell your friends, tell your family, tell your colleagues if you think they would be interested in this work. And if you could also like and subscribe to the Undercurrents podcast feed wherever you're listening to this, that would be massively appreciated. If you want to find out more about Smart Peace, the first thing I'd say is listen to the other two episodes in this series, which will be available wherever you're listening to this. But you should also check out the websites of the respective organisations involved. The Smart Peace project itself has now come to an end, but I hope that this series in particular, along with other written outputs, really give you a sense of the lessons that we can learn from this. And the organisations involved are all, of course, continuing to engage in the processes that they were part of in the countries that we've covered this week. In particular, if you want to find out more about Chatham House's work in this area, then I would suggest following the Chatham House International Security Programme on Twitter at Chatham House ISR and also checking out our website www.chathamhouse.org.
if you're new to this podcast through this mini series, then welcome. We have uh, 130 odd other episodes that you can check out. Would heartily recommend some of our recent ones from this year in particular. And I'm very, very delighted that you've that you've found us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new episodes for you. And in the meantime, thank you very much for joining me.